Last Sunday in Bible class, there was a brief discussion about the tense of salvation. As we were studying in the book of Philippians, there were some thoughts about when we talk about salvation, are we talking about something that is in the future? Is it something that is in the past? Or is it even something that's in the present? When we think about being saved, are we thinking about something that has already happened, something that is happening, or something that will happen? And that's a really good question. And I'll just go ahead and give you my uh, conclusion at the beginning of the lesson, and that is that it's all three. There's a sense in which we have been saved, a sense in which we are being saved, and a sense in which we will be saved. And I appreciate the songs that Bruce chose to lead us in this morning. He asked me about what I was preaching on, and I tried to sort of tell him what it was about. And several of the songs that we sung talked about different tenses of salvation. I noticed it even in the first song, where we talked about how heaven came down and glory filled our souls. Heaven already came down to us. But then in the second verse of the song, it talks about, I have a hope that surely endures, and it is um, in heaven in the future. And now I've lost the phrase, but there's a future sense of a hope in heaven that awaits us. And so there's a sense in which heaven has come down and a sense in which we're looking forward to going and being in heaven in the future. And so I have two goals for this lesson this morning. As we consider the three tenses of salvation, I want us to first of all understand the reality of them as the Bible presents them. And then secondly, I want us to understand how we ought to respond to them. And so that's a very simple approach, but we'll look at the three tenses of salvation, what they are, what they mean, and then how we ought to respond. But first, I'd like to define the word salvation. The word for salvation in Greek is something like soterios. And so if you ever hear theologians or read commentators that talk about soteriology, that's what they're talking about. Soteriology is the doctrine of salvation. It comes from the Greek word for salvation. The root word in Greek is the word sozo, which literally means to save, to heal, to preserve, or to rescue. And so when we talk about salvation, that's the kind of thing that we're talking about. We're talking about being healed, or being preserved, or being rescued. And just like in English, these Greek words don't always refer to spiritual salvation. They can also be used to refer to physical salvation. And I'll show you a couple of examples in the New Testament. In Matthew chapter 8, in verse 23, here's the account of Jesus being uh, in the boat with his disciples when the storm came. It says, when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves, but he was asleep. And they went and woke him, saying, save us, Lord, we are perishing. Now, in that context, the disciples are asking Jesus to rescue them from the storm, to rescue them from the waves. 
They see the danger. They see the physical threat that they are under. And they look to Jesus and say, you are the one who can save us. Another example would be in Matthew chapter 9. In Matthew 9 and verse 20, it says, And behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. For she said to herself, If I only touch his garment, I will be made well. Jesus turned and seeing her, he said, Take heart, daughter. Your faith has made you well. And instantly, the woman was made well. And so we see the same word used three different times in this text. Once in verse 21, twice in verse 22. And it's translated in the ESV as made well. It's the word sozo. It's the word for save or salvation. And so these examples don't refer to spiritual salvation. But both of them do help us to conceptualize it a little bit better. When we talk about spiritual salvation, it's like being in a boat where the waves are threatening us and there's no escape except for what Jesus can do for us. It's like being sick with an illness that continues to plague us and nobody can give us relief except Jesus. That's what salvation is. But Jesus uses the word in a spiritual sense in many places, but What about Luke chapter 19 and verse 10? Where Jesus tells us, the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. And so, that is the salvation that we typically talk about. Is the salvation of our souls, the salvation from sin that Jesus is able to provide. And he is eager to provide. And so, that brings us back to the question again. Is that saving that Jesus wants to perform for the lost, is that a past reality? Is it a future reality? Or is it a present reality? And I'd like for us to look at all three of those senses. And we'll start actually by talking about salvation in the past tense. Now, I think that thinking about salvation in the past tense is a concept that's fairly easy for us to understand. It might be the sense that we're most familiar with, because generally speaking, we recognize that there's a definite distinction between a person who is lost and a person who has been saved. You know, even in conversations that you might have with people out in the world, sometimes people talk about how they got saved, and that's a past tense kind of expression that people tend to use. I think this was the sense of the jailer's question in Acts chapter 16. We just looked at this um, in our Acts series on Sunday afternoons. But in Acts 16 in verse 30, when Paul and Silas were in prison, the jailer brought them out and said to them, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? You know, the question that he's asking is, what must I do to enter into a saved state. I know that I'm not saved. How do I become saved? And in verse 31, they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. 
Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them, and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. And so from this day forward, the jailer could speak about being saved in the past tense, couldn't he? He could think back to his life before this moment as being lost and his life after this moment as being saved. He had believed in God, he had been baptized, and he had been saved. Now, that's why there are several places in the New Testament that talk about salvation as being in the past tense, as being something that we have already received. Here's a good example. This is the smallest text in the whole PowerPoint, so forgive me. But if you'd like to, you can open or squint. But Ephesians 2, verse 1 Begins by saying, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. Carrying out the desires of the body and the mind and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace, you have been saved. Through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now, I think that this is a really good text to help us to think about the past reality of salvation. Because Paul is drawing a contrast between our distant past and our less distant past. He said, there was a time in your past when you lived just like everybody else. You were out there walking uh, in the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. And in verse 3, we all once lived like that. But two different times, Paul tells us, by grace, you have been saved. You have been saved. It's kind of like the song Amazing Grace that we sing. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. And so the idea is that by the grace of God, salvation has been made available to us and already been given to us in in Christ. When we say that we have been saved, what we mean is that there was a definitive moment in time. There was a definitive line that was crossed where we went from being lost to being saved. And that was when we became united with Christ in baptism. But there's also a sense in which salvation is something that we're looking forward to in the future. 
And I think that this is also pretty intuitive and pretty natural for us to think about, that we look forward to a salvation in the future. I'll show you a few places that talk like that. In 1 Peter chapter 1, in verse 3, Peter says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So notice here that when Peter talks about salvation, he doesn't so much talk about how we have been saved, but he's looking forward to a time where we will be saved. He says there's an inheritance that is waiting for us in heaven. He says that it's a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And so because of salvation past, there is a confident expectation of salvation future. In verse 3, he says, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. And in verse 5, he says that this hope is a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And so in this sense, salvation is something that we are looking forward to in the future, something that we are eagerly anticipating. And so Peter comes to a conclusion in verse 13 of this chapter. And he says, okay, if this is true, like we're looking forward to this inheritance, we have this salvation ready to be revealed. He says in verse 13, therefore, preparing your minds for action, girding up the loins of your mind, and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Peter says that we ought to be people who are forward-looking. We ought to be people who are eagerly anticipating and, and focusing on the treasure that awaits us. Because that's going to change everything about the way that we live here in the present. But this is a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And Peter talks about something that will be accomplished when Christ returns. And we think about all of the places in the New Testament that tell us what will happen when Christ returns in the future. In 1 Thessalonians 4, in verse 16, it talks about there being a cry of command and the voice of an archangel and the sound of a trumpet and the dead in Christ will rise first. This is when we will receive the redemption of our bodies, like Romans 8 and verse 23 talks about. This is when we will take part in a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells, like 2 Peter 3 and verse 13 refers to. And as Mike read for us earlier, he says, what sort of people ought you to be waiting for and hastening that? And so there is a future salvation. And so that's why in Romans 13 and verse 11, Paul writes, salvation is nearer to us now 
than when we first believed. You know, if you think about your life being like a timeline, you know, you start over here and then you end up over here. You're at some point in the present where there's the past on this side and the future over here. And so if you look back to when you were saved in the past, you are now closer to when you will be saved in the future. The end is coming. We don't know exactly when it is. But we do know that we're one day closer today than we were yesterday. We know that we're one year closer today than we were a year ago. We need to think about those things. We need to realize that we are approaching salvation. But there's a third tense of salvation. Not only is it something that happened to us in the past when we were saved, and not only is it something that will happen in the future when we will be saved, but in some ways, we could also say that we are being saved in the present. And I think in some ways, this is the most challenging part of the puzzle for us. But when we understand it, it helps to bridge the gap between the past and the future. And I'll show you a couple of places that talk that way too. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, in verse 18, Paul writes, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. So notice the tense there in verse 18. Here Paul talks about how we are being saved. It is a present reality. We have been saved, we will be saved, and we are being saved. And this text also gives us an indication of how that works in the present. Notice the way that Paul is comparing and contrasting the wisdom of the world with the wisdom of God. As you look at what Paul writes here about all of that, which one do you think is greater? Is it the wisdom of the world, or is it the wisdom of God? Obviously, Paul esteems the wisdom of God as being greater than the wisdom of the world. But you know, the thing about the wisdom of the world is that it's attractive. I mean, that's why so many people are persuaded by it. It's celebrated, it's respected. You know, there's all kinds of worldly wisdom about how to live your best life and get the most fulfillment and satisfaction out of life. But we look all around us and we see the wisdom of the world failing, don't we? We see people who devote themselves to worldly things, who end up ruining themselves with worldliness, ruining their relationships, living in ways that are selfish and unsatisfying. What is it that keeps us from living like that? 
What is it that keeps us from ruining our lives with worldly wisdom? Well, it's the Word of God. You know, last week I preached from Psalm 19, and we talked about how all of those different things, we talked about all of those different things that the Word of God does for us, how it enlightens our eyes and it rejoices our hearts, and it gives us direction about how we really were designed to live. It's the word of God, it's the wisdom of God that rescues us from the corruption of this place. See? Specifically, in verse 18, it is the word of the cross. As we come to understand the cross of Christ, we come to understand true wisdom. As we come to understand the greatness of self-sacrifice, as we come to understand the beauty of love that's demonstrated there, the more that we come into touch with what true wisdom is all about. And so the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. We are escaping from the corruption that's in the world because of sinful desire, like Peter talks about in 2 Peter 1 and verse 4. There's one other place that uses this phrase. 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Here again, Paul will talk about salvation in the present tense. 2 Corinthians 2 and verse 14. He writes, But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death, to the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. Now, I really like the picture that Paul paints for us here, and he envisions like a big victory parade. And the idea is that like after a battle is fought, that the returning general and the returning army would come back in joyful celebration of the victory that's been achieved, and they would go through the streets, and it would be a time for celebration. But the truth is, is with every victory, there's also a defeat. You know, you don't have to fight battles to understand that. You can just be a sports fan. And you know sometimes that when you are at your most happy is when your opponent is at their most unhappy. And it also works the other way too. But Paul is talking about how we are walking through the streets. It's like we're spreading the fragrance of the knowledge of Christ everywhere, and not everybody's going to like it. To those who refuse the gospel, to those who are too proud and too worldly and too self-centered to really see the power of it, they're going to think that that's a terrible message. They're going to smell the knowledge of Christ like it's death. But Paul says that to those who do appreciate it, the knowledge of Christ is the scent of life. 
As we are being saved, we are walking advertisements for what Christ can do in our lives here and now. We're showing the world what it looks like to think like Christ and to live like Christ and to talk like Christ and to love like Christ and to forgive like Christ and to be dedicated to the glory of God like Christ. And there's going to be some people who like it and some people who don't. But it's those of us who are being saved, who are more and more resembling Christ and spreading that aroma everywhere. And really, I think that Paul completes that thought in the next chapter. In 2 Corinthians 3, in verse 18. Because here Paul says that we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed. That's present tense. We are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. And so as we have already said, we are looking forward to the resurrection of our bodies. We are looking forward to the salvation ready to be revealed to us. We are anticipating a resurrection of our bodies and a glorification and taking hold of eternal life and living on in eternity with God forever. But as much as we look forward to the transformation in the end, the truth is the transformation has already begun. As we look to Christ and as we behold his glory, the Spirit is transforming us from one degree of glory to another. And I like how Paul says it in Romans 8, in verse 11. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. In other words, the transformation that we hope for in the future is going to happen by the same power that we are being transformed in the present. The same spirit that will raise us on the last day is the spirit that is raising us here and now and giving us new life in Christ. And so for us, the hope of resurrection is already, but not yet. Being transformed into the image of Christ is already, but not yet. And the gift of salvation is already, but not yet. In Christ, we have been saved, we will be saved, and we are being saved. And so let's put all of this together. <laughs> if we are in Christ, if we have been baptized into Jesus, like that jailer we read about in Acts 16, then how should we feel about our salvation? We can think about it in the past tense, in the present tense, and in the future tense. In the past, we ought to be moved to gratitude. You know, when Paul talks about what Jesus did for him, it's like sometimes he can't even finish his thought before he praises and thanks God for the salvation that he's received. 
As we think about how we were saved, we should be thankful for the grace that brought us out of death and into life. But on the other hand, as we look forward to the salvation in the future, we ought to be moved to hope. We ought to have a confident expectation, an eager expectation for what God will do based on the promises that he's given us. As we think about how we will be saved, we should be eagerly anticipating the grace that will give us immortality. So what about the present? Well, hopefully my graphic design choices lead you to see how gratitude and hope are mingled there. That in the present reality of salvation, the idea is that we can be grateful for what God has already done in our lives. We can be grateful for the growth and the maturity and the spiritual fruit that's being born, and we can give him thanks and praise for all of that. And we can also have hope for the transformation that's yet to be completed. We can look ahead and see the changes that we need to make and see how we fall short of the glory of God and we see the beauty of Jesus and how we want to be more like him and we can have hope that the transformation that he's already begun in us is one that he will continue to give us the power to achieve and will one day complete when Christ returns. And so we can be thankful for how far we've come and we can be hopeful for how far we have to go. In Christ, we are in the process of being made like him. And so in Christ, salvation is a process that has begun, is continuing, and will be completed. I'll finish up with one more text. I like how in Titus chapter 3, Paul really brings all three tenses of salvation together. And I'd like you to think about that as we read these verses. Titus chapter 3 and verse 3. He says, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Can you see all three tenses of salvation represented? The question really that I want to leave you with is, could you say these same things about yourself? Could you say that you have been saved? Could you say that you are being saved? And could you say that when the end comes, that you will be saved? Well, it's by the grace of God that we can answer yes to all three questions. By the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. And I take that to be a reference to baptism. That when we are 
buried with Christ in baptism, that we are washed and regenerated and renewed with the Spirit of God. And we enter into salvation. We enter into something that we can always look back to and say this is when it started. We begin a process that is continually happening throughout life. And we look forward to a time when it will be made complete when Christ returns. There is salvation in Jesus Christ. And as Peter said in Acts chapter 4 and verse 12, there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And so that is the invitation this morning. Is that if you find yourself apart from Christ, outside of Christ, apart from salvation, that you have the opportunity to lay hold on eternal life before you leave. You can be saved. You can begin this journey of being saved. And then when Jesus returns, you can be with the saved eternally. We'd like to ask you if you need to do something to make your life right with God that you would let us know. And you have an opportunity to do that while we stand together, while we sing. Please come to the front.